0: Hello and welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich. Great to have you aboard. If you'd like to reach me, Jordan, it's easy. You can email me, Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, at chartproductions.com. Twitter is at Jordan WBZ. And join us on Facebook at The Jordan Rich Show. Very excited about today's guest. He is Nicholas Meyer, an award-winning author, screenwriter, director, including his new Sherlock Holmes novel, The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols. Adapted from the journals of John H. Watson, M.D., he's written many novels, including a great one, The 7% Solution, back in 1975, in which Sherlock Holmes meets up with Sigmund Freud. It became a film starring Nicole Williamson, Robert Duvall, Alan Arkin, Laurence Olivier, and other great stars, and Nick received an Academy Award nomination for his screenplay of the film. Nicholas Meyer debuted as a director in 1979 with the terrific film that he wrote called Time After Time, starring the great Malcolm McDowell and David Warner. But in this kid's heart, he will always remain the greatest director of Star Trek film by helming Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and of course Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Along with the book we'll talk about today, he's written The West End Horror and The Canary Trainer, two Sherlock Holmes vehicles, and one of his books, Target Practice, was nominated for an Edgar Award. He also directed the ABC movie The Day After in 1983, which, as we'll discuss, remains the single most-watched television film ever made, a remarkable achievement. Now it's time to grab my deerstalker hat and pipe and interview a fascinating guest. Nicholas Meyer, let's go on mic. So let me just dive right in. I love Sherlock Holmes, as you obviously do. I read this book, The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols, in two sittings. Couldn't put it down. John Watson is back, and you write for Mr. Watson or Dr. Watson. Tell us a little bit about the approach to this book.
1: Well, a lot of people have pointed out that it's been 26 years since I edited a Watson manuscript. Uh, i could rather fancifully proclaim that it's been 26 years since one has turned up but i suppose uh, (laughs) in a more realistic uh vein i could say that although i am a person who doesn't hesitate to talk a lot it's usually only when i've got something to say and in the case of this book uh, i didn't write or edit a Sherlock Holmes manuscript for a great length of time, because uh, uh, an idea that seemed to fit and be sort of worthy of a Watson treatment uh, hadn't occurred to me in all this time. Since the advent of Donald Trump and the phenomenon of fake news, uh, this idea started to seem uh, more viable. It would be more honest to say that I've been thinking about this book before Trump. Um, I was, I started thinking about it about 11 years ago, as a friend of mine pointed out to me that we were walking around Bloomington, Indiana, and I was talking about the protocols, um, And wouldn't it be interesting if uh, Sherlock took them on on the theory that if it takes a thief to catch a thief, maybe it would Mm -hmm. take a forger, that would be me, to go after a forgery.
0: (laughs) Well, the time frame is right, uh, historically. For the sake of those who are not familiar, just talk about what the protocols of Zion are and their intent at the time and how this ties in with Sherlock Holmes.
1: Your listeners can easily Google the protocols of the learned elders of Zion and discover that it is the most vicious and destructive and seemingly indestructible forgery or hoax of all time it was first disseminated in 1903 by the secret police of the Tsar, that would be nicholas ii uh, the okrana was his secret police and what it purports to be are the minutes of a secret meeting of jews bent on taking over the world and they were very quickly uh, exposed as bull, um, but they are a very convenient uh, hoax for many people. Henry Ford, in his newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, in the 1920s, uh, published the entire Protocols Mm. of the Elders of Zion, which is more or less some 300 of the most boring pages you've Mm. ever (laughs) read. I mean, just plowing through it is will put you to sleep. Um, But they are used as textbooks in the Middle East in schools. They're still published in places like India, Japan. I think in Louisiana, you'll find them. The epilogue of the novel lists all the places where they're Mm. still extant. Vladimir Putin quotes them. Um, They just it just won't die. And uh, as I say, you can Google them or you can read the novel and maybe that's a more interesting way to well, learn about it. <laughs>
0: I've been a history student uh, in that era a long time, and I've read too much about them. But reading this historical fiction was really exciting and thrilling, particularly to see Sherlock Holmes, one of my all-time heroes, go to bat for my people. <laughs> so that was a very warm and engaging thought as I read through the book. I love the fact that there are so many historical characters who meet up with Sherlock and Watson.
1: All those people... The, the trick is not to make Holmes encountering real people something of a gimmick. It has to be, at least from my standpoint, uh, organic. They have to be part of the story as opposed to some kind of a, a campy add-on. Mm. In The 7% Solution, when Holmes meets Sigmund Freud, he's there to get over a cocaine addiction, and Freud was involved with cocaine and, um, and became disenchanted and so forth. In the West End horror, which is the second Holmes uh, Watson story that I allegedly found um, Holmes meets up with Gilbert and Sullivan and George Bernard Shaw and Oscar Wilde and Bram Stoker. But that's not a coincidence. That's because the murder takes place in the theater world of London's worst uh, West End. Uh, in March of 1895. And all those people who are alternately victims or suspects were doing the things they were really doing at that time. And by the same token, the people that Holmes and Watson encounter in the adventure of the peculiar protocols um, are there because they are inextricably bound up in the narrative, not because I just decided to name drop. Well, we we,
0: we also take a trip on the Orient Express. Fascinating. And the femme fatale, if you will, is based on an actual person as well.
1: Absolutely. Anna Strunsky, uh, who was married to a man named Edward Walling. At least they, they were married for a very long time, or they were together for a very long time. She was a Russian-born uh, American, I think raised in San Francisco. She was a sometime novelist. And Walling, who came from uh, deep south Kentucky, and uh, then they fell in love and they were living in New York, and along with W.E. Du Bois, they were the founders of the NAACP. Mm -hmm. Um, And Walling and Anna Strunsky had prior to that spent about a year traveling through Russia and making a study Of the persecution of Jews and pogroms, which for them was analogous to the treatment of African-Americans in the United States, complete with lynchings and Mm. and uh, race riots and so forth. So they were sort of studying what Tsar Nicholas was doing or not doing in relation to their own work in the United States. Right. And they fell out. They they broke up because she was a serious pacifist, and he uh, uh, thought essential that the United States participate on the side of the Allies in World War I. And I think that was among the reasons they broke up.
0: There's so much going on in this book of international import, but I particularly love the interplay uh, between Holmes and Watson. And in this, your new book, John Watson is married, what, for the second time?
1: apparently the second time, you know, Doyle, the, I guess we can let our hair down, the author of (laughs) (laughs) the Watson behind Watson, he made, he was a sort of, uh, he tossed off these Sherlock Holmes stories, he could write about one a week, and he didn't pay the same kind of attention that he paid to his historical novels, or to some extent his science fiction, you know, he sort of wrote the original of King Kong. It was called the lost world and it was about dinosaurs living on a plateau in South America and the white company, his classic medieval swashbuckler. He labored over these, but the home stories, um, he got a lot of his details wrong because he couldn't be bothered to keep things straight. was Watson (laughs) wounded in the arm or was he wounded in the leg? Was the landlady's name Mrs. Hudson, or was it named Miss? Or was her name Mrs. Turner? Um, and so there are a lot of um, inconsistencies that the Sherlock Holmes fans delight in trying to reconcile. And one of these has to do with how many times Watson was married. <laughs> and <laughs> so I he definitely seems to have been married twice because Watson alludes to his, uh, what amounts to at least his second wife. So I decided, uh, to uh, let him have a second marriage and to take that marriage seriously. Um, and, uh, in fact, because I'm currently editing a new Watson manuscript, um, Juliet Watson, that's his wife. Uh, is a character in that as well.
0: I like her a lot, by the way. She's an interesting character and uh, affects Mr. Watson. I keep calling him Mr. It's Dr. Watson. It affects him. Well, you could
1: be excused for calling him Mr. because in England, surgeons are not referred to as Dr. That's correct. They are mister.
0: Learned that in the book. I should have remembered that. That may be why I'm confusing it. You mentioned the fans, uh, the Baker Street regulars and all the others. I'm a super fan. But I'd love to know about your first introduction as a young guy to Holmes. How and why is this the phenomenon that it is even today?
1: Well, I was introduced by my father. I grew up in, in New York. My father was a psychoanalyst. He was a very cultivated and interesting guy, one of the most interesting people I think I've ever met. And um, he was extremely well read. And uh, And he also read to me as a child. I, I'm sure he read Treasure Island and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and The Three Musketeers. And at some point, I imagine I was around 11, he gave me the Sherlock Holmes stories to read. And I had no way of knowing, how could I, that my life was about to radically change. Mm. There there are 60 stories by Arthur Conan Doyle, 56 uh, no, uh, short stories and four novellas, beginning with a study in Scarlet. And uh, I more or less, well, I could be mistaken, but I think I probably gobbled these up in a bunch. And... Um, I realized that, uh, Holmes in many ways reminded me of somebody that I knew. And I, and I guess I, I don't know how long it took me to figure out, but people used to say to me by this time, I guess I was in high school or junior high. Oh, your old man's a shrink. Is he a Freudian? And I didn't know. Uh, so I said, pop, are you a Freudian? And, um, he said, well, it's a silly question. I said, why, why is it a silly question? And he said, because it's no more possible to discuss the history of psychoanalysis without starting with Sigmund Freud, uh, than it is to discuss the history of the discovery of America without starting with Columbus or the Vikings, take your pick. Um, But to suppose that nothing has happened since the vikings or columbus is to be pretty rigid pretty doctrinaire when a patient comes to see me i listen to what they say i listen to how they say it i'm especially curious as to what they do not say i'm interested are they on time what kind of clothes do they wear what's their body language Mm -hmm. i am in short searching for clues from them as to why they are not happy and i listen to this And I thought, oh, now I know who Sherlock has always reminded me of. He reminds me of my dad. And I said, what you do sounds like detective work. Mm. And he said, well, I suppose it is a a lot like detective work. And then, bear in mind, I'm 13 or 14, and I'm, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer by any means. But I start to wonder, how much did Arthur Conan Doyle know about the life and writing Of Sigmund Freud and of course the first thing you realize is oh they're both doctors and they both died in the same city within nine years of one another and then you remember Sherlock Holmes is a cocaine addict then you remember that Freud or you learn that Freud was a cocaine user who eventually uh, gave it up and then you remember that Freud got involved with cocaine with two other doctors, Konigstein and Kohler, on the uses of cocaine as an anesthetic during eye surgery. Hmm. And then you remember or learn that Arthur Conan Doyle um, studied ophthalmology in Vienna. No less. (laughs) And years are going by, but my pea brain is working, working, working. And eventually, uh, around 1972, uh, when the Writers Guild, I was living in California and working on movies, but the Writers Guild went on strike. You weren't allowed to write screenplays. And the woman with whom I was living said, well, now you can write that Sherlock Holmes Sigmund Freud book that you keep yammering about. (laughs) and And she was right. I had nothing else to do except pick it every day. um and you you're not allowed to write screenplays. So that's how the book got written.
0: Seven percent solution. yeah, you're talking about and
1: if you would if you had told me when I was scratching it out that it would become the number one best-selling novel in the United States for forty weeks on the New York Times list, uh, I understandably, you know would not have. Believed you and, and a, fact, a film
0: that stands up so well to this day. And I want to talk to you about movies in a sec. The cerebral heroism of Sherlock Holmes. He's such a flawed character, but the brilliance is so so much fun to watch. Uh, a hero who doesn't necessarily use brawn, but brain.
1: I would say two things about that. One is Doyle is at pains to refer to his athletic prowess. Mm-hmm. He he's a master of the Japanese uh, fighting art of what he calls baritsu. He's an expert single-stick player, a boxer. He's a good actor. Um, but yes, ultimately, this is about solving problems with your brain. And it was very appealing, I think, to a lot of people. And when people ask me, why do I think these guys are so popular? And you really can't have one without the other. Um, they're somewhere sort of in the wake of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, hmm. and precursors to Batman and Robin. Uh, they're in a world that's far enough away historically to be sort of fairy tale like, but close enough to our own time so that uh, taxis and telephones and stuff—it's all recognizable. So they they straddle an interesting. Uh, divide, mm. and I think that you know, like Quixote, uh, Holmes is a is a deducer. Uh, Quixote tells Sancho what things really are. That's not a windmill. That's a giant, etc. And Holmes similarly tells Watson uh, what things really mean, I suppose you would put Henry Higgins and Colonel Pickering in the same category. In fact, I think there's very little doubt that when uh, George Bernard Shaw wrote Pygmalion, which later, as we know, became My Fair Lady, um, Holmes was at his height. And Holmes lives at 221 B Baker Street, uh, uh, Higgins lives at 27 A Wimpole Street. There's a landlady, Mrs. Hudson, in one establishment, Mrs. Pierce in another establishment. Watson is just back from Afghanistan. Colonel Pickering is just back from India. There's a lot of similarities. Mm. Um, but it's always about deducing. Higgins confines himself to deducing from people's speech where they're from. Exactly. Holmes deduces a lot of other things. And <laughs> Quixote tells you what things really are.
0: I'm talking with Nicholas Meyer, we'll get to my favorite film of all time, and you'll probably figure it out. But before we get there, let's talk about The 7% Solution and the fact that for the first time, Sherlock Holmes was cast in a different light with Nicole Williamson, a rather blonde fellow. Did that tend to affect you if you were a Basil Rathbone guy, as I assume you might have been?
1: Well, I confess that I think Basil Rathbone might have made a great Sherlock Holmes, but as far as I was concerned, he never got the shot. I've almost never seen a Sherlock Holmes movie until more recently that I didn't despise. Ah, Um, okay. I'm I'm really a a purist, I'm a, a, at least in this area, I am an arch conservative where Doyle is concerned. (laughs) I like my Sherlock, you should pardon the expression, straight, and I never understood Nigel Bruce As Dr. Watson, I didn't understand why a genius would hang out with a buffoon.
0: Looks more like a genius maybe would next to the buffoon. I don't know.
1: Well, I think, but here's my point. I think Holmes, uh, and I don't think I'm unique in perceiving this. I think Watson and Doyle agree with me. Holmes is very vain about his gifts. He doesn't want the admiration Mm. of of a jerk. He wants the ad- the admiration of a regular, normal person, not, not, not some buffoon. And I can't believe that Nigel Bruce is the voice that you hear when you read the stories. And I always keep coming back to the stories. So when we made the movie of my novel, The 7% Solution, we were trying very hard to get an audience to relook at these characters, look at them afresh. Was I wild about the fact that Nicole is a blonde Holmes? No, but that, but he was so good. He's so brilliant in the movie that that ceases to become an issue. And Robert Duval as Watson to my way of thinking, who practically steals the film is a totally revisionist answer. To that Nigel Bruce stuff, mm. which that, that campy stuff, which I can never stand because I, I guess I take this all so seriously. Well, I'm
0: glad um, <laughs> you should. You should. You're the man writing for Doctor Watson these days and doing it brilliantly, absolutely. One more thing about Holmes in the in the films and on television. What is your take on Sherlock, the Cumberbatch version?
1: Oh, I love when I said until recently I I didn't like any of these things. I thought the first two seasons of Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman were just terrific. That was a powerful and persuasive, to my way of thinking, reimagining of. Mm. Of homes, I, I thought that was terrific.
0: I couldn't agree more. I want to stick with your book for a few more moments, and we'll continue to plug it because it's definitely worth every page turned. But Thank you. it has Thank to do. <laughs> it, no, I love it. It has to do with anti-Semitism and the rise of it in Europe and so forth. But talk a little bit, if you will, about how, in this case, Doctor Watson comments on the general tone of anti-Semitism, I mean, even those who were rational people had a particular bent when it came to Jews in society, Uh, Britain, including Mycroft, Sherlock's brother.
1: I think that uh, a lot of sort of establishment feelings, not only about Jews, but about people of color, uh, today seem Quite shocking uh, when you and and there. By the way, there is racism in the Sherlock Holmes stories. There's an exchange between uh, Holmes and uh, uh, a Negro man. I can't call them African American because they're in England, um, <laughs> but a man of color mm-hmm. that is so unpleasant and shocking that you you wince and and you you want to say this is so unworthy of Arthur Conan Doyle. It's a lesser story and you you just wish it weren't there. But the fact is that feelings about people of color in Imperial Great Britain as we can still call it for the moment uh, and about Jews uh, and other minorities, um, whether you call Italians, Uh, Waps or Dagos and Jews were Kikes or Hebes or Yids. Um, It was a sort of unthinking thing until people started to think about it and draw your attention and go, just a minute, just a minute, we're talking about human beings. Now, to be fair, in Great Britain, uh, they also, um, somewhat before Holmes's time, I think, had a Jew for a prime minister, yes,
0: Disraeli. and
1: very and very successful, Lord Beaconsfield. I, I can't remember what his real name was, but just in case you didn't get the point, he called himself Benjamin Disraeli. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so you couldn't miss it. Um, <laughs> and while there was a thoughtless or reflexive anti-Semitism in Europe and in England for years, for years. The coronation of Richard the Lionheart was, you know, they murdered every Jew they could find in order to celebrate. Um, But it was also true that uh, Jews starting in the uh, Renaissance had made enormous strides um, in contributing to various European cultures and societies uh, as Mark Twain wrote in his appreciations about the Jewish people, uh, you know, Egyptians are gone, Syrians are gone. Um, I don't mean modern day Egyptians, obviously, but I mean mm. the Egyptian, the, the empire right, of the right. Pharaohs, the empire of of uh, Darius and the Syrians and the Hittites, and so, they're all gone. They had their day. They made a noise and disappeared. But the Jews, for some reason, have endured and they contribute. If you want to, you know, think about uh, how American culture is defined by them, whether you're talking about the Andy Hardy movies that were made in Hollywood or the music of George Gershwin or West Side Stories or Rodgers and Hammerstein and in France, the music of Offenbach, um, they, they have contributed to and in many cases defined a certain culture that is not, you know, into which they've sort of assimilated. Um, That said, as we know, anti-Semitism is never goes away, and it's back stronger than ever. It wasn't when I started this book, it was sort of, you know, buried underground. Um, But but now it has, there's been a A real resurgence of it. And one always has to say, what is that about? And it's a very unanswerable uh, to my way of thinking question. What is that about? I don't know, Mm -hmm. but it's here. And it's been sort of recently legitimized from the top interesting.
0: Well, let's take a look now at film. And I've waited 38 years to say thank you for delivering my favorite film. I can't believe I'm saying this to the man who directed uh, Star Trek to The Wrath of Khan. You probably hear this from a lot of Star Trek maniacs, as I am. But uh, right up there with Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon and uh, French Connection is Wrath of Khan. And I know you've written a book, The View from the Bridge, Memories of Star Trek and a Life in Hollywood. I have not read it. I will admit to that. But I have to ask ask you That assignment after the, the big blockbuster of 79, I guess, the first film, where a lot of us fans were kind of disappointed that it didn't have the feel and flavor of Star Trek. What was your take going in? And were you a fan? Were you knowledgeable enough about the, the franchise? You obviously saved it in a big way. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, I didn't set out to save it. I, I, don't, I guess I don't think in those terms. Um, I, I was not a Star Trek fan. I had never really seen the series. It, it looked like I missed everything that was important or good about it or significant about it as a younger man. I just saw people running around in Dr. Denton's and a guy with pointy <laughs> ears and I, I just kept going. I missed everything. Um, and uh, after my first film that I wrote and directed, which was time after time, oh, love it. Um Uh, somebody suggested that I meet Harv Bennett, who was assigned to produce the second Star Trek movie, whatever people thought of the first one. And I am not anybody to knock it because somebody had to go boldly where no one had gone before. Um, Whatever you thought about it and whatever kind of budget overruns uh, were part of it. The fact is that it was it made money. It did. Yes. Yeah. So Paramount was, you know, not going to let it go at that. And and um, a friend of mine who was an executive at Paramount, a childhood friend, actually, suggested that I go meet Harv Bennett and talk about this project. And I said, is that the one with the man with the pointy ears? And she (laughs) said to me, you are such a snob. Why don't you? Why don't you just go meet the guy? And we wound up cracking a couple of beers in his office and we got along very well. And he said, uh, let me show you the movie and I'll show you some episodes, which he did. And as I was watching it as a more adult person, um, I realized that it this stuff reminded me of something that I had quite liked. And that was a series of books that I read and a, one movie about it uh, of the adventures of Captain Horatio Hornblower mm-hmm. by C.S. Forrester, the guy mm-hmm. who wrote The African Queen. Right. And um, the, the Captain Hornblower is a, an officer in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars, he has many adventures. There's a girl in every port, and it's the kind of thing that a sort of adolescent or pre-adolescent kid, although they're actually much more authentic and and compelling than than that teenage perception would suggest, because uh, I've reread them and they're pretty good. And I said, okay, this is Hornblower in outer space. Hmm. Um, and in fact, when I sat down with Bill Shatner and mentioned this. Uh, he got very excited and said, oh, that's what Gene Roddenberry always says. I don't know whether Bill has ever read Hornblower or not. But I thought, yeah, I could I could make a space opera and, and do this. And um, by the way, if you want the blow by blow uh, description of all this stuff, including the 7% solution and the, the day after and a lot of other stuff. My memoir is not a bad place. The, mm. uh, the view from the bridge, uh, not to be confused with Arthur Miller's <laughs> play, which is a view. From yes. The bridge.
0: Yes. Love the, um, love the pun. No.
1: Anyway, uh, Harve said uh, draft five of the script is coming in. And I said, well, great. Send it to me. And then I didn't hear from him. And I woke up figuratively, um, a few weeks later and I thought, well, whatever happened to that Star Trek hornblower space opera I was getting so jazzed about and I called him up and he said, Oh, um, I'm sorry. I can't, <laughs> I can't send it to you. It's it's not very good. He, he actually said something more colorful, but, mm. uh, Anyway, uh, I I said, well, you know, come on, send it to me anyway. I said, well, and what about draft four or draft three? And he said, kid, then I was kid. You don't understand all these previous drafts are simply separate attempts to get another Star Trek movie. And I said, oh, well, why don't you send them all, send them all up. Hmm. And in those days, you didn't hit send.
0: You Brought them or hand delivered truck, them or trucked a van,
1: them. <laughs> a, a, a van drives up <laughs> and these the stacks of scripts come in, and I'm a very slow reader, but I trudged through these drafts. And then I said to Harve and his producing partner, Robert Salon, we were in my house, I think, and I said, So I have an idea what if we, I grabbed a legal pad and a pen, and I said, what if we make a kind of a laundry list of anything that we like in these five scripts? Could be a major plot, could be a subplot, could be a sequence, could be a scene, could be a character, could be a line of dialogue, I don't care. Let's just make that list. And then I'll write a new screenplay and try to Uh, combine and absorb as many of these things on the list as as possible and they didn't look very happy and I Mm -hmm. said what's wrong with my idea and they said well uh, if we don't have a screenplay in 12 days uh, ILM which is the industrial light and magic special effects house says that they can't guarantee uh, delivery of the shots in time for the June opening. And I said, what, what, what June opening? And they said, oh, yeah, the picture opens on June something and whatever. I said, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> you booked the theater, the, the movie into theaters and there's no movie?
0: When, when is this? What, in terms of what month? Where are we here?
1: Oh, I don't, you know, I don't remember. but It, it was nuts.
0: Of course, it sounds. Uh,
1: I mean, I, I, it may be, in fact, it, it may be in the book. Yeah. Uh, and it wouldn't be hard to. Sort of work backwards. I mean, it was insane, that is and crazy. I'd only directed one movie in my life. And they said, "Well, you know, this is how it works. You you book it into these theaters."
0: Wow. So you and took said, you took those so ideas. I, said, well,
1: I, I, I think I, you know, I was young and idiotic, and I said, "Well, I think I can do this in twelve days, but we but we have to we have to decide now what these things are. There's mm-hmm. not going to be a movie," and they still didn't look happy. And I said, "Now what's the problem?" And they said, "Well." reality is we couldn't even make your deal in 12 days. (laughs) And I, I said, look, (laughs) I I think I regret this decision, but I said, forget my deal, forget the money, forget the credit. We're not talking about directing now. That's all signed, sealed and done. We're just talking about getting a script. And if we don't do this now and get on with it, there, you're not going to have a movie and they couldn't, you know, believe what i was saying and my agent who was a lovely man and had once considered becoming a priest as a young man and when i told him what i'd done he realized he could never have been a priest because he wanted to kill me <laughs>
0: I don't want you to cut any part of this story up, but needless to say, what happened on screen <laughs> was a, a success and has lived on. You have taken that spaceship through the galaxies to Star Trek Discovery, which is the CBS Access show. So this is something, it made sense that your, your title for your memoir was View from the Bridge because Star Trek's become a big part of your life, apparently.
1: Star Trek and Holmes and... The day after are the things that I'm probably most associated with. I've done other stuff. I've done two Philip Roth movies, The Human Stain, and a movie called Elegy, which was based on his novella, The Dying Animal, which is a film I'm extremely proud of. Um, But, yes, Star Trek Holmes... the day after. Well, Those are my little claims to fame.
0: They're not so little in fact. You've got fans all over the universe who, for all three reasons love you, and, and we should mention the day after 1983, Memory Serves is was the most watched TV film of all time. Is that right?
1: It remains the most watched TV movie ever made. Mm. hundred million, 100 million people watched it in one uh, night. And that was and in A- it,
0: ABC, I think, wasn't it?
1: ABC. And it's the movie that changed Ronald Reagan's mind about a winnable nuclear war and sent him to Reykjavik to meet Gorbachev and ultimately sign the intermediate range missile treaty which uh, Donald Trump has just uh, walked out of
0: I should also tie it back to Star Trek 6 because you were there helming the final movie from the original with the original cast which was very uh, sentimental and and very powerful, a film about the ending of the Cold War. So
1: It's a political film, yes, yeah. very much so.
0: Well, I am just tickled that you've joined me, and I got a chance to say thank you for your work on the USS Enterprise. But also, being a Holmes fan, I just finished the second book that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and his partner have written, uh-huh. Mycroft and Sherlock. That was a lot of fun. But I must say, I've not read a, a Holmes adventure with as much staying power as this one. I loved it and I think it'll do a lot to teach people about the events and why they should be aware of their history. I really do. So thank you for for doing all of that and for, you know, continuing to be as creative as you are.
1: Listen, it was a pleasure. I was so pleased to be invited.
0: Great to have Nicholas Meyer, acclaimed director and writer on the show. His memoir, by the way, The View from the Bridge, Memories of Star Trek and a Life in Hollywood, was was published back in 2009, well worth the read. And you can find out more at nicholasmeyer.com. Thanks to all of you for subscribing and downloading and rating and reviewing this podcast. Listeners all over the world and growing, we appreciate it. And I'll continue to bring you fascinating, creative people who, like me, appreciate and enjoy the art of conversation. Until next time, this is Jordan Rich saying, as always, be well so you can do good.